This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. I'm speaking today to the historian Holger Hawk about his book, Scars of Independence, America's Violent Birth a revisionist history of the Revolutionary War. Our conversation took place before a live audience at the New York Public Library on May 21, 2017. My thanks to the New York Public Library for hosting and arranging the conversation. Okay, are you ready to go? Yeah. Uh, Sure. I should tell you that I, I think this is a wonderful book, and, and I, I hope you all go out and, 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 and read it. I mean, it's a, I thought I knew something about American history, and I didn't know this story. Um, the, it's, it's got all kinds of angles and questions to it, and so we're going to start with Holger talking about what the first of all, what is the the theme? The vi- what do you mean by the violent birth of the American Revolution? G- give us a small sketch of, of the story you're going to tell, and then tell us how you got, why you got into writing the book. What prompted you to do this work, and and where did it begin, and and why is it important? Thank you. <laughs> Good evening. Um, Scars of Independence is a history of the American Revolution and the Revolutionary War. Um, and so it, it, it starts in around 1774-75, and we take the story through the Revolution and the War to 1783, and uh, then look a little beyond uh, what happened uh, to the various parties and uh, the uh, legacies of the, uh, of the Revolution, both in the narratives of the uh, British Empire and, of course, the, the new American nation. Um, I first got uh, curious about revolutionary-era violence about a decade ago. Uh, I was uh, researching a previous book uh, on um, 18th-century British art, and I stumbled across a series of monuments in churches and cathedrals in England. They all told similar stories of American loyalists being hunted, and dispossessed, and driven out of their country into exile for opposing the revolution. And those uh, harrowing stories stayed with me after I'd finished that earlier book, in part because they seemed hard to reconcile with the conventional narrative that I uh, held in my mind of a rather restrained, orderly, nonviolent revolution. And so I got back to the monuments, researched the stories behind them, read more widely in sources both British and American, and what jumped out at me were two things. One the sheer scale and pervasiveness of violence that affected uh, civilians, combatants, and captives on all sides. Uh, But two, also that the participants and the survivors made sense of their revolutionary struggles in terms of that violence. Uh, Meanwhile, American uh, college students and the broader public uh, seem to be reading histories that didn't acknowledge the profound uh, importance of that violence. You also think of it as a, as a civil war. Yes, yeah. Um, Explain um, how you see it as a civil and, war. And, and, and so the, 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 you know, the America's founding is not just uh, your 
a conventional um, heroic struggle for noble ideas and ideals. It is also a profoundly violent civil war, America's first civil war, and a civil war in the British Empire. Uh, in America, with fully one-third of the uh, white population in, say, 1770, opposing the uh, idea of, of revolution and preferring to stay uh, within the British Empire. Um, so early on, I decided that the uh, story needed to be told from multiple perspectives. So we have the American patriots, we have the American loyalists, we have the, the British perspective, we have the perspectives of the uh, free, the enslaved, and the indigenous, um, because I wanted to transcend partisan or uh, nation-centered accounts and also avoid falling into the uh, trap of portraying either side as just cruel aggressors or uh, uh, feckless traitors or, or, or innocent victims. And so it's a... But in, in, in the beginning, it, it's, it's a civil war, because, and it's a question of an identity. Who and what is an American? Because these are Anglophone, the, the Protestant, that they're colonials, and as colonials, subjects of the king, as are the British on the other side, and the... Uh, how, how does the question of identity play out? I mean, how, how do you know who is an American? Are they to be treated as fellow subjects or as savages? I mean, this is a problem for the British. That's a problem for the British. So the American Revolution is one of the most, if not the most contentious issue in 18th century British politics. It divides the leadership, and it divides the broader uh, political nation. And the crux of this is the notion of identity. Who exactly is an American in, say, 1770? On the one hand, Americans are quite similar to mainland Britons, right? They share language. They broadly share common religion. They share a um, heritage of political rights, uh, allegiance to the same crown, a flourishing trade, and so on and so forth. On the other hand, from a British... And, and, and so that sense of similarity is shared by uh, many colonials uh, at, at the time. They call themselves Americans, quite a common uh, term by then. By that, they also mean British subjects happening to live in the North American part of the British Empire. On the other hand, Britons increasingly see differences emerge. So uh, they regard American colonials as more parochial because, in part, less widely traveled, uh, they see their British, the Americans' Britishness uh, diluted uh, through large-scale immigration, through the transportation of convicts from the British Isles, through the presence of half a million slaves of African heritage, uh, through the presence of the frontier. Um, and so, uh, but whether you, are, whether you emphasize similarities or you emphasize differences, across the political spectrum, uh, the, the, this emerging conflict uh, is seen as an unnatural civil war. That's a common phrase used to describe the conflict at the time. And this has implications um, for um, once the conflict becomes an armed struggle, it has implications for uh, what counts as legitimate and illegitimate means uh, of, of violence. Um, and uh, you know, how should rebels, who are also fellow subjects, be treated uh, in, in, in the field, and so on and so forth. When does the uh, violence begin to express itself? I mean, there, there is the Boston Massacre in 1770, and you start your book with that. You can maybe say a few words about that, but then the, 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 
the armed rebellion doesn't really get going until 1774, right? So, so explain how the violence begins to well up into the streets. To, mm-hmm. So you get rebels and patriots on one side, loyalists and Tories on the other, attacking each other. Okay. So again, we have these multiple strands, and in the book, you know, multiple narratives arcs, uh, narrative arcs intersecting. So uh, you're referring to the beginning of the book, uh, where uh, I described the Boston Massacre. I partly decided uh, to do that because it is a violent incident we remember well, um, and then to pivot saying, well, but there's a lot more uh, and more nuance and complexity that we don't remember so well. Um, so um, there is, by the time we get into the book story, there is already a decade at least of street-level violence uh, where colonials protest the imperial tax regime and, and various uh, legislation, not least uh, by physically a- attacking the representatives of the empire, uh, governors' houses, uh, customs officials uh, on the waterfront in, uh, along the, the East Coast. Um, Lewis is referring to this moment in 1774, the Continental Congress uh, responds to punitive legislation by the British Parliament um, by forming what's called the Continental Association, basically a boycott of British goods and a non-importation and uh, 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 a ban. Um, the way to implement the Continental Association across the territory of the 13 uh, colonies is not least by forming what are called committees of safety, in communities, uh, small and uh, large, uh, um, across the colonies. Uh, these are ordinary uh, colonials, 7,000 men, and they were, of course, at that time, all men, um, a, a sizable um, proportion uh, of the population, who um, begin to police the actions and words of their suspected uh, loyalist neighbors, of those suspected of not supporting uh, the, the protest uh, against Britain. Um, but they operate, so they, you, know, you, you, you might have, uh, if, you're, if you're suspected of, of um, uh, not supporting the rebellion, you might have uh, your mail intercepted, you might be uh, called in for interrogation, you might have your uh, business premises or your private homes uh, raided for evidence. Mm. The uh, uh, committees... Uh, collaborate with mobs, with crowds on the street, and so it soon gets rougher too. And this is where we uh, um, get into the tarring and feathering, the rail riding, um, the torture um, that is at the heart of the revolution. So what's important to understand is that, you know, it's often said there's no guillotine in the American Revolution, as there would be just a decade or so later in the French Revolution. And that's true, of course. But Physical violence and psychological violence um, are not the regrettable exception to an otherwise restrained revolution. They are uh, necessary, defining parts of the revolution. The revolution requires the violence to sustain itself. So, um, take You're forced into becoming a patriot citizen, forced into it, Right? I mean, the, the Committee of Safety, if you don't agree with us that you are protesting the empire, we're going to tar and feather you, or we're going to break down your house, right? Well, we'll try and persuade you um, to see 
your ways and come over to us. And we'll be quite, quite persistent with that and you know, give you multiple chances. But if not, uh, and the, you know, as we get into 1775 and 1776, there's the legislation both at the colonial state level and, and overarching the continental level, um, uh, which uh, provides treason laws, mechanisms for a banishment, uh, imprisonment, and so on. But uh, if you are unlucky, like uh, let's, let's take one, one story. Walter Bates is a 16-year-old uh, uh, son of an Anglican loyalist family in Connecticut. He gets picked up by his patriot neighbors who suspect that Walter knows where his loyalist brother uh, is hiding with, 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 with others. The patriots subject Walter to um, some forms of water torture. They threaten him with uh, being cut in two on a log in a sawmill um, uh, if you are an Anglican priest, you might be dodging bullets fired at you mid-sermon if you are not uh, uh, stopping praying for your legitimate king. If you are a loyalist uh, writer or uh, a printer or uh, a publisher, you might have your uh, print run seized and burnt. Uh, a bounty might be set uh, on your head. What's a liberty um, gang? A group of uh, uh, patriots um, implementing the okay. uh, principles of the, of the revolution. All right, and, and, and this is beginning to break out 1774, 75. I mean, we, we don't get to the uh, firing at, at Lexington until 75, right? Okay, so by that time, how sharply drawn are the hostilities, the lines of hostilities in, in the colonies? Within the Americans. Well, yeah. so... Um, imagine John Adams's formula is probably roughly right. Um, imagine one third by then committed uh, to uh, on the Patriot side, up to one third loyalists, and fully one third in the middle, undecided or hoping to find ways of staying neutral. And then also uh, um, bear in mind that loyalties change um, over time according to circumstances and. Uh, just because I take an oath of loyalty to one side or the other doesn't necessarily mean those are my genuine political beliefs. It may just be my only way of um, protecting my family or my livelihood uh, when one army is closer than, than the other, and I might have the opportunity. Of we're back. Talk, yeah, because we're but, talking about people that are living in the same town that are that are neighbors. Uh, the same families. I mean, yeah. you, you all know the, the Franklins of, Benson, uh, of, Pence, uh, of, of Philadelphia, right? The, the founding father, uh, who is a, a strong defender of the British Empire right up to 1774, and then becomes one of its strongest critics, and his son, uh, uh, William, the last royal governor uh, uh, of uh, uh, New Jersey, who becomes a, a, a passionate leader of loyalists. Uh, those two never reconcile, even though the founding father eventually helps the nation at large to do so. Let's go now to the, to, to the British side and, and the attitude of George III and the attitude of somebody like Edmund Burke in the, in the, in the uh, British Parliament and, and also the, the brothers Howe, Richard and uh, William, William, right? Mm -hmm. Give us the attitude from... How, how is George III thinking about his subjects in America, whom he regards as his children. Quite. George III, uh, a young king, comes to the throne in his uh, 20s in 1760, has a rocky start, uh, 
by uh, 1770, he is an experienced um, sovereign and political manager. He starts out actually somewhat more moderate than some of his more hawkish uh, advisors, but by the time of the Boston Tea Party, and we're talking about the Continental Association, the, uh, the, the boycott, he's had enough, and he moves over to a rather hardline side. And by August 1775, uh, he has the rebels to be uh, declared to be in open and avowed rebellion. And the rebellion against the crown has to be crushed, just as rebellions uh, in Scotland or Ireland, if you stay in the British Isles, or elsewhere in the British Empire. Um, had to be crushed earlier in the century or in the previous century. The rebels are not to be treated like fellow countrymen who happen to be living in America. They're going to be treated like uh, criminals. In law, yes. But so uh, you you, you were referring to the king's role as as the father figure. There is an an opening always for the wayward American children to to come to their senses uh, and be received back into the the imperial fold uh, under uh, his benign majesty. But um, uh, along the way, of course, rebels are rebels. Uh, They are not to be, uh, they they are criminals, uh, strictly speaking. Uh, They are, uh, if captured uh, under arms, not to be treated as prisoners of war, but uh, under under civil war and destined uh, for the court. In practice, that won't work out because of the sheer numbers and the risk of retaliation, but we might get back to that later. You were asking about other figures. So in order to, in order to orchestrate the military uh, effort, uh, George, put, uh, George III puts in place um, uh, a set of generals in, and admirals, including the Howe brothers uh, Lewis was referring to. Um, they have an interesting story um, there used to be a third Howe brother, George Augustus, who fought in the previous war, uh, the uh, Seven Years' War, fell uh, uh, near Ticonderoga, and the, the people of Massachusetts Bay erect a monument to him in Westminster Abbey. So the Howe brothers, the surviving two Howe brothers, are rather fond at least of that one colony. Um, um, it lands them with the reputation of being somewhat soft as they start the campaign to suppress that rebellion. Um, my sense is their real mistake is to think that they could suppress the rebellion without the use of maximum force. And that, like other leaders in Britain, they consistently overestimate the real strength of the loyalists. Who else were you referring to? Edinburgh. Um, well, Ed- yes, talk about the division of opinion mm-hmm. in England. I mean, there's not only a division of sharp opinion in, in the colonies, but also in England there are the sides that are pro rebel and, and, and uh, pro-empire. Quite. It cuts... Um, it, obviously, you don't get into the government of George III anymore after 1775 for you, if you're opposing that, uh, uh, that, that war policy. Um, but there is a strong opposition both uh, in Parliament and uh, in, uh, across the, the wider political nation. Um, in fact, the army itself is divided. And so whilst most officers once ordered to lead their regiments uh, against the Americans, uh, do so even if before the war they advocated more conciliatory measures. There are several who resigned their commissions. So uh, take the, the Earl of Effingham, a proud military uh, career officer of a military family. Uh, the moment his regiment is ordered to America, April 1775, he resigns his commission. And he's very eloquent about it, about his reasoning. He says... I cannot, I cannot get involved in a war against fellow subjects. And if my duties as a citizen and my duties as, a, as an officer um, are in conflict, then the former have to prevail over the latter. 
until they can again be reconciled. And by that he means until we have a war against our natural historical enemies, you know, the, the French absolutist, uh, Catholic absolutist, or the Spaniards. All right, as the war gets going in, in, in 1776, you point out in your book that it's the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest wars in American history, that, that there are per capita more Americans killed in, in the Revolutionary War than were killed in World War I or were killed in World War II. Yeah, and that the, we're now beginning to talk about years of, um, say, 76 through to 83, when, when peace descends. But many people are killed. I mean, this is a very bloody conflict. I mean, in, in, most of our history books sort of pretend that it was a matter of idealistic gentlemen and, you know, so forth, but, it, but it's not. Mm-hmm. So... Talk about some of the kind of, of, of combat. Talk about the uh, looting, burning, uh, raping of, of um, villagers and atrocities on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, you're absolutely right, of course. With the sole exception of the American Civil War, so by my count, at least the second American Civil War, the Revolutionary War... Um, costs per capita the highest number of casualties. And that is, that is even if you count only patriot casualties as a proportion of the patriot population. It uh, yields the highest mortality rate amongst prisoners of war in any American war, significantly larger than the Korean War, which would be the sad number two ranked war there. Um, you're referring to the impact of the war on both civilians and combatants and captives. So all wars, uh, women um, in all wars are at risk of sexual assault and rape. This is no different in the American Revolution. In fact, American women are at risk of rape by not just British, but even American soldiers. We know about some of the instances uh, through two sets of sources some lead to British courts martial. And uh, so uh, upstairs in the, in the manuscript reading room, um, I was able to read through uh, some instances there. Um, but we also know about these stories through their positions that some brave American girls and women gave to American investigators after their harrowing experiences. So I uh, tell the story of Abigail Palmer, a 13-year-old girl, uh, who, with her two teenage uh, friends and an older female pregnant relative, uh, is raped by British soldiers over three consecutive days at the house of her grandfather uh, in Hunterdon County, New Jersey. The Continental Congress, and this is one of a cluster of incidents in that region of, uh, at the end of 1776, early 1777. The Continental Congress gets word, uh, hears rumors of, of these assaults, um, and sends out a commission to investigate. Um, and so members of the Congress and uh, uh, local legal officials and, and others uh, take depositions. They are then uh, published uh, with the, the, the stories anonymized um, and uh, disseminated in the newspapers both across the colonies and in the British Isles. And we might come to speak 
about, uh, about an aspect of that. But what I want to, the reader to take away here is that to do justice to the issue of rape in the American Revolution, we need to recognize, on the one hand, the, uh, the uh, experiences uh, of the individual uh, traumatized women. On the other hand, also see that the patriots, the revolutionaries, used that enemy violence, those war crimes, uh, as a political tool in the moral and the propaganda war that shadowed the, the war on the ground. Um, you were asking about atrocities in the field. Um, well, I mean, there are occasions where the, the rebels will attack the British, British at night and murder them in their barns, and, and the same thing happens on the other side, right? I mean, you have that kind of, of uh, warfare throughout the entire war. There, there are, so the standards, you, you know, obviously war is violent by definition, but what counts as legitimate and illegitimate violence in a war um, changes across time and, and, and space. And so the benchmark, the standards that we're talking about are recognized codes and conventions and laws of war at the time, such as uh, you ought to give uh, um, grant quarter to a surrendering enemy. You should observe certain minimum standards for the treatment of prisoners of war once you have safely um, um, contained them, and so on. And, of course, uh, oh, to me, not uh, terribly surprisingly, uh, both sides uh, infringe and break those conventions at various times. My objective with the book wasn't really to come up with a, with a balance sheet, but to try and, and provide us, you know, uh, and as even-handed an account as possible. It turns out, on balance, um, and in part due to the leadership of uh, George Washington and colleagues in, uh, his colleagues in the Congress, um, it turns out that, by and large, uh, there were more... Uh, uh, let, let's put it positively. There were fewer infringements by the Continental Army, uh, by the revolutionary um, forces, than there were by the British. The incident uh, Lewis was referring to is the other way around, so uh, 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 would you like me to... Um, well, I mean, you know, I mean, br briefly, I'm, ju I'm just trying to give a, a sense of yeah. the, uh, the violence that is pervasive on, on both sides. Sure. Um, and also, I mean, the, the prison conditions. I mean, what, mm -hmm. what the, the British have a prison ship in, in Wallabout Bay here in, in the East River. And something like 16,000 American prisoners die. And that's an enormous number. There are several dozen ships, uh, and this is a number for, for, the, for the entire war across uh, all prison sites and, yeah. and prison ships. Yeah. Um, um, I'll give you an example of, of an atrocity and what we, what we can learn about, from it about the uh, moral dilemmas of those in, involved. Uh, at the center of the book, of the book is uh, a scene... Uh, of a nighttime surprise attack by several hundred British forces on 104 continental American dragoons who are sleeping across six barns. Uh, it's a, an attack with bayonets only to uh, reduce the friendly fire uh, risk, primarily to maintain the element of surprise, but also to play on the psychology of those who are about to be attacked. Um, American forces are much less accustomed to bayonet warfare than European professional armies. They have a, an intense terror of that particular weapon. Um, the, uh, the surprise works. 
the British forces surround the six barns. The Americans very quickly, when yanked out of their sleep, realize they have no chance of resisting, and they seek to surrender. But this is an instance where the British forces continue and club and bayonet their way through that uh, grisly scene. What we learn from the statements of some of the American survivors is that they observed some of their assailants to, to be hesitating. They seemed to have doubts. Was it right to attack their fellow subjects who were begging for quarter, for mercy, in their own, in their same language? So they send back for orders to their commanding officers who were sort of uh, one step back. And the order comes, yes, kill all of them. And so they, so they continue. What about the, the, the Washington crossing the, the Delaware and attacking the Hessians on Christmas Day? I mean, is that the same kind of thing? Do they, they break in on the Hessians and kill them in their beds? No. No, that's, I, would, I wouldn't compare that. It results in a, in a good spin story here and there. Um, I mean, you, you, you know about the Hessians, the, the 36,000 German troops. The shortcut we use usually is, is Hessians because that is one of the big territories in what becomes Germany that they are uh, hired from by the British crown. Um, I, I tried... Uh, so this is an instance of uh, reputation... Uh, the, the Hessians have the reputation of being you know, from a despotic land. They are not really invested in the British cause that they've been hired to help support. Um, and they have the reputation of being particularly brutal and not care about the conventions of war. There were a few instances where I was able to actually show that. Uh, in most cases, the British are just as bad or the Hessians are just as restrained, whichever way you see it. Um, the the, the um, um, moment in the war that uh, Lewis is referring to gives rise to this wonderful piece of spin uh, that we used in the end on the cover uh, of the book. This is a, 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 you might be able to see it closer up, hopefully later some of you. This is a painting by John Trumbull, uh, uh, John Trumbull now in the um, art gallery of Yale University called The Death of General Mercer at, at Princeton. The, um, the, the scene is Mercer uh, gets uh, separated from his uh, British uh, men uh, and uh, he doesn't ask for quarter, he doesn't uh, seek to surrender and he is uh, mortally wounded. The story is the Patriots spin immediately is that he did ask for quarter and that he was refused and he was killed in cold blood. Uh, the Patriots exhibit his corpse in a Philadelphia coffee house. Uh, in, a, in a carefully choreographed spectacle of death, and Trumbull reinforces the story in oil. Talk about the propaganda war now, because that's a very important part of the story, and, mm-hmm. and the the Americans are very good at it. I mean, apparently they're, if I read the book correctly, they're better at it than the British. I think they are. Yes, right. and, okay. and and it connects to one of the more surprising uh, uh, findings uh, in, in my research. So. Um, this is, uh, bear in mind, this is not just a war about strategy and manpower and, and logistics. This is as much a war uh, of persuasion. It matters uh, not just how each side conducts itself, but also what stories each side can tell about their and the other side's uh, conduct. Um, the, and so... Obviously, n- n- neither side is above concocting stories of war crimes when it suits them. I just gave you an example with General Mercer. But to my mind, much more interesting um, uh, is, uh, was to find how creative and how relentless the Americans were, the revolutionaries were, in documenting 
uh, provable British atrocities. So in the aftermath of, um, say, the uh, clusters of rape I was referring to earlier, the atrocity, uh, the, the Baylor massacre I just uh, uh, described briefly, the Continental Congress would appoint these commissions to investigate. So this is the era of the Enlightenment. Empiricism, uh, empirical approaches become increasingly important from scientific to legal practice. The revolutionaries bring empiricist approaches to the documentation of their enemies' war crimes. They send out these commissions. Either they you know, use some of their own members from the Continental Congress. Uh, remember, uh, many of them have legal training. They might use um, army officers who are already on site and have access uh, to evidence. They might send uh, medical personnel, uh, priests, anyone with the perceived authority to document what might have occurred. And they would then uh, collect um, a written evidence if the enemy in retreat had discarded orderly books, which might uh, give hints at what the orders were. Uh, they interrogated uh, enemy captives. They took eyewitness statements from uh, local um, bystanders. Um, and, and that's critical, they would document the specific nature and number of wounds in the bodies of both injured but surviving and dead American soldiers. And then collate all this evidence, put it in the report, send it to the Congress. The Congress would immediately publish it with all this evidence uh, in, in an appendix usually and put it out through the newspapers across the colonies and uh, in Britain um, as a tool in this war for hearts and minds. It's a phrase actually used at the time. American hearts and minds, first and foremost, of course, but also British, uh, bearing in mind that this continued to be a highly contentious uh, war back, back in Britain. And you're right, Lewis, the, the Americans are, they win the, the, the polemical, the moral, the propaganda war, if you, if you want, hands down. I suspect part of the reason for that is it is much easier, easier for rebels to uh, um, spin a, a narrative of victimhood. Uh, an empire, the British Empire, then another empire, has to demonstrate strength. And so even when there are instances where it's the other way around and the Americans are guilty of, uh, uh, of breaking the codes of war, the British will not turn a loss into a moral asset as the revolutionaries very effectively did. All right, let's come now to the end of the war. The, uh, how does it so happen that after the war, some kind of reconciliation is possible? I mean, these are two sides that have treated each other brutally. Mm-hmm. And what happens to the loyalists? Many of them have fled into exile. Can they return? Are they allowed to keep their property? I mean, are they accepted into the new uh, United States of America? It's a very mixed story. So about 60,000 white and black um, loyalists go into permanent exile, taking with them about 15,000 slaves. But that leaves the vast majority of loyalists who wish to stay or return to their communities, uh, stay or return from uh, temporary exile. The peace treaty between the British Crown and the new United States uh, declares amnesty, the end of prosecutions, uh, the, uh, and in a very soft uh, clause, the right to reclaim previously confiscated property. Uh, property. 
the reality on the ground is very different. And so one of the sets of papers I was studying uh, here at the library uh, were the uh, papers of the last British general, Zergi Carlton. He reads on a daily basis the stories of loyalists trying to make that journey back, trying to reclaim property, and meeting not just with discrimination, um, but with renewed popular violence, uh, threats to their lives. Uh, there is a, a renewed outbreak of tarring and feathering. There are some political murders. Now, so uh, the reconciliation is by no means a foregone um, conclusion. Overall, the new American nation does end up reintegrating itself somewhat faster than many other societies after revolutions that were also civil wars. It helps that 60,000 of the most offensive opponents, of course, are already in permanent exile. But there's more to that. And there's, there, this is where we come to the leadership of figures uh, like Washington, who insist that the new nation needs to um, comply with the peace treaty and claim its place amongst the powers of, uh, of the world. Uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, makes a career immediately after the war as a lawyer in this city, defending loyalists against discriminatory legislation and in, in property claims. Uh, he is adamant uh, that uh, order and tolerance must trump what he calls the little, mean, selfish, vindictive passions of a few. He also has a, uh, an argument that um, the new nation needs the capital that comes with the loyalists, mustn't lose that capital. And so across communities in the 13 states, um, individuals uh, um, think about the, the capital, the professional skills, uh, the consumer power of their former neighbors and work out gradually the reconciliation. There is one other critical element to why this works out, and that is to do with memory or rather forgetting. Right. So the, the, the first step of the whitewashing of the revolutionary violence happens immediately uh, in this moment at the peace, 1783, the, the initial aftermath uh, of the war. The patriots control the story. It's a, it's a case of winners get to tell the story of, 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 of the conflict. They write American uh, on American violence out of the founding narrative. And the loyalists, in turn understand that the price of their reintegration is to bear their own scars quietly. So they don't nurture a melancholy folklore of loss the way that American Southerners would after the Civil War. Um, right, so the, the, the story is whitewashed right away. That's the first phase. Yeah. The second phase, well, you have the British, of course, who have little interest in, uh, in talking about the greatest imperial disaster until the period of World War II. Um, and so uh, uh, on the centenary of the American, the end of the revolution in, in 1883, the Cambridge historian Sir John Seeley uh, refers to the revolution as that embarrassing episode, which we, would, you know, which, which we try to men- mention as seldom as we can. Um, and then you have a third phase of whitewashing, and that is where even the patriot blood shed at British hands, which used to dominate the initial narrative, gets written out in favor of this rather quaint, more harmless war. Um, and that is explained, I think, in part by the changing geostrategic circumstances. This is where the United States and the United Kingdom, at the turn of the 20th century, forge a new and special relationship. And so this episode of violence um, between now, kindred Anglo-Saxon peoples is very inconvenient um, and written out of the story. Last question. What lesson can we learn? I mean, why, how does this 
story of, of the violence and scars of independence bear on our uh, circumstances today. I mean, the, uh, we're still very good at spin, right? I mean, and the, the, uh, <laughs> we kind of write Some. The, the fact that the uh, you know, American foreign policy for the last 30 odd years has been based on terrorism, state-sponsored American terrorism. But we, we never see that in a story, right? The, the, uh, so it, it, was that s- sort of an idea in your mind? Well, I should preface whatever I might, uh, uh, I might say by saying, it, it, far be it from a German-born expert in British history to lecture Americans on, on any of this. But you're I not do lecturing, think, you're just I, telling <laughs> us a story. Well, I mean, you know, you but, know. Or to draw lessons, you know, on your behalf. But um, I, I, I do think uh, that there, there are good reasons why this is a, a, a good moment, an urgent moment, uh, to, to confront the, the tumultuous birth of the American nation, both in international and in, in more uh, domestic contexts. So it seems to me Americans have perhaps clung to their last great romance with war, with this war, not least because we live in this age of global conflict and terrorism and uh, debates about the nature of patriotism. But I would turn this around and say it is precisely because we uh, deal with these uncertain times, insurgencies, stalled revolutions, and failed states that uh, we should engage with these tensions between a moral purpose and the violent means of uh, uh, pursuing it. The um, I, read, I read the revolution as a somewhat cautionary tale for the modern American empire, which um, at the beginning of the century had a rather more aggressive and missionary approach to nation building. And understanding the relationship between violence and nation building, I think, remains, remains uh, relevant for us today. I was also, uh, if you remember the debates about uh, um, extraordinary rendition, uh, enhanced interrogation, uh, Critics, uh, both within the U.S. Congress and outside, um, repeatedly cited George Washington's insistence on the proper treatment of prisoners of war in that debate in, 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 in the past decade, bringing it closer to home as, uh, as Americans are trying to forge a path forward from present divisions. The extreme political polarization as we've been talking about, the demonization of the political enemy, the intimidation of the press, the use of violence as a means of politics. That was all there at the founding. And maybe, um, uh, 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 as we were talking about reintegration, maybe there's some hope in this story that even a bitterly divided society can find uh, ways of reintegration. As um, As a historian, I would hope, of course, that this time it wouldn't be at the cost of forgetting how we got to, to this point. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.